Church, are you ready for God's word? Are you ready? Good, good, good. Well, I tell you what, the dark is an interesting thing. And, and, and today, uh, I'm going to tell you a story about, about going through in the dark and how difficult it makes things. It makes things that are, I shouldn't say difficult, it's, it's, it makes things that are difficult in the daytime impossible in the nighttime. And uh, we'll talk about that in a second, but I want to remind you that we finished our sermon series last week with the story of Esther. And today we're starting a brand new sermon series entitled The Light of the World. Specifically this message I've entitled The Light of Heaven. The Light of Heaven came and lit up a dark world. Now, I'm saying that because this past uh, month for uh, kind of my birthday, Evelyn's birthday, kind of done with the whole 2020 thing, we went to Orlando. And uh, they talked me into it because things were dirt cheap. You know, you're going to talk dad into something, you got to go during pandemic because <laughs> they were basically paying you to go. And so it's kind of like, come here and pray you don't get uh, sick. And so we, we go, and we're having a good time, and we brought our in-laws with us, and they wanted to ride Space Mountain because my, my wife really wanted to go on Space Mountain with her dad. Now, uh, my father-in-law, Louis, he's sitting right here, um, he wears a baseball cap most of the time, and you can wonder why. Uh, <laughs> hey, father-in-law, I'm right there behind, I'm right behind you, I'm getting there. And so he's wearing his baseball cap, and it's a tailor-made, tailor-made baseball cap. It's black. He's on the Space Mountain. And uh, if you've ever been on Space Mountain, you ride it in the dark. So his, my mother-in-law's sitting right behind him, and I say, you're going to lose your baseball cap. Yeah, no, he knows, he knows exactly what's going to happen. He loses his baseball cap. Which is interesting because we spend the whole week trying to find this baseball cap after that. Because they collect them all and then they take them to Lost and Found. And they go from that Lost and Found to another place because of COVID. They had all these different restrictions. Anyway, he won't let this baseball cap go. But the funniest thing that I, I found about the whole thing, he tells my mother-in-law, he goes, he's yelling at her in the, on the ride. He's saying, y'all, did you catch, did you get that? And she's like, What? My cap, did you catch it? And I'm saying, mother-in-law, I love you. But she couldn't have caught it in the daytime. If they were standing still and he said, I'm going to toss you this baseball cap. That would have been difficult. It's impossible to catch it in pitch black going I don't know how fast on a roller coaster, getting jerked around, and you can't see anything. And he says, well, I thought it might have hit her in the face. And I'm going, you know, the truth is, you need light. If you're going to operate and be effective, you need light. You need light not only to catch a baseball cap on Space Mountain. You need light to be at your best in life. In life. That's what we're talking about here today. Jesus Christ came to be the light of heaven in this world. In this world. And last week we talked about Esther. And Esther has a very, very interesting uh, dynamic to the book. And, and it basically we said that Esther has received some criticism from some, some uh, scholars saying it's very unique and maybe it shouldn't be part of Scripture because it doesn't expressly and explicitly mention the name of God in the book. It's one of the only books in all of Scripture that doesn't mention God. You say, whoa, why? And we said because God, through the exile, was fulfilling His promise to Moses. When He told Moses in chapter 31 of Deuteronomy, He said, the people, once you die, they're going to, they are going to cheat on me. That's what he says. They're going to cheat on me with other gods. And they're going to be unfaithful. And so I'm going to turn them over to the people that worship the gods they're cheating on me with. 
So it's the Babylonians will come, the Assyrians will come, different nations will come and conquer them and hold them in, 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 in captivity and they will... And they will know what it's like for me to step back and them not be able to take me for granted in the same way they once did. Where, they, where I was close and I was visible and I was in a big way a part of their lives. I'm going to step back and I'm going to be in the background. And Esther is an example of God saying, you may not be able to see me, you may not be able to hear me, and you may not be able to feel me, but I'm there nonetheless. I'm there nonetheless. And we said that all through the book of Esther, you see the what? The providential hand of God at work. He's just working. He's working. He's working. And you know who else was a part of that time frame? Daniel. Daniel was a part of the captivity and the time frame of, 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 of Israel, or specifically Judah, being under the captivity of of the Babylonian Empire. You say, well, who came first? Well, Daniel came first because we know Daniel was a young man and he was taken into uh, exile. That means the Babylonians had conquered Judah. They took the, the best and the brightest young men and they brought them into the palace and they, and they made them part of the king's uh, think tank or, or, or brain trust, brain power. And so the, the, they were to assimilate into Babylonian culture. We know this because there's a point in time where Daniel asks if he could eat something different from the rest of the young men that had been brought in. The reason he did that is because of his conviction to God. He said, I don't want to be eating these, these different things that have been, de that have been uh, um, dedicated to idols for their worship. Ben, can you put my time up there? Because I want to make sure I don't go over. And so we know that Daniel was living in a foreign land and holding to his convictions. We also know that during that time, he always rose to a place of prominence. One story goes that the king had a, had a dream that literally, some of y'all are looking at the time, don't do that. Then you know how long I have. And you're like, oh my God. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So listen, the king, the king had a dream that really, really bothered him. It unsettled him deep in his soul. Have you ever had a dream like that? Well, this dream was significant because it was a dream specifically given to him by God. And he calls his wise men. The Bible calls them wise men or magi. These are individuals that were the best and the brightest that the king had brought together to advise him on issues that he didn't understand. He didn't understand this dream, so he brings them. He says, this is what I want from you. I want you to tell me my dream and interpret it. And the, and the wise men say, no king has ever asked this of his, of his wise men. You have to tell us the dream first, and then we'll interpret it. And King Nebuchadnezzar said, I was born at night, but not last night. You need to tell me the entire thing. This is how I know you're for real. If I tell you my dream, you can make up any old interpretation and I'll never know. But I'll know that you're for real and legit if you can tell me both my dream and the interpretation. They couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. So guess what? He says, let me motivate you a little bit. Anyone ever have someone, uh, a, a boss that liked to motivate the troops this way? He said, you don't get it done, you're fired. And to them, fired meant like off with your head. I've been feeding you. I've been clothing you. I've been sheltering you. You have everything you need. And now it's your time to perform to give me the knowledge I need and the wisdom I need. And if you can't do it, then we'll just kill you and be done and we'll start over. And so they freak out on him. How many of you would freak out? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd freak out a little bit. And then Daniel hears about it, and Daniel says, my God can tell him. So Daniel begins to pray. He gets the interpretation. He gets the dream. He gets the interpretation. He shares it with King Nebuchadnezzar. And immediately Daniel rises to prominence. He is, you find there in the beginning of the book of Daniel that he is actually the head of the Magi. He is the head of the wise men. Then a couple of chapters into the book, you see that Babylon falls to the Medo-Persians. Cyrus the Great is, uh, uh, conquers Babylon. You have Darius who, uh, who 
Daniel is serving under, and he is placed again in a place of prominence. This whole region is divided up into uh, into uh, different districts where he puts a governor over. Daniel happens to be one of those go- governors. Some, some of the people around him are jealous of him. They try to set him up. They set him up to the point that he gets thrown in the lion's den. He overcomes that, at which point he raises again, arises again to a place of prominence. The reason I'm telling you this is because this is taking place at the same time that Esther, Nehemiah, Ezra is taking place. I'm not saying they take place in the exact same time, but this is the time period. And the reason this is significant is because you might be wondering, in a minute, when we get into the story of the Magi, how Magi came from where? The east to what? To anoint or to confirm the king of the Jews. You might say, but how did they know about this? How would they know what to look for? What was going on? You see, Daniel was once the head of those magi. We know that in the book of Esther, you get a clue as to the prominence that the magi had had risen to. We know that that by by the time the Medo-Persian came around, the Medo-Persian empire came around, the magi were more important than they had been in Babylon to the point that now... The Magi have to confirm the new king. You cannot be king of Persia and the Medes until the Magi confirm you. So now you literally have king makers. And we pick up that story in Matthew chapter 2. You say, well, pastor, some time has gone and yet Persia is still around. And you have these king makers that are traveling And the Bible says after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, magi or wise men from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star. We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. That's a very significant verse. I'd like you to take some notes. First of all, they saw it. How did they see it? And you know what else is interesting? Is that the text implies from this chapter that the star appeared only to the the Magi. Now we know that these, these men were students of the stars and the celestial constellations. They studied the heavens. And so it's interesting because here is the principle that Jesus states more than once. He says, if you look you will find. Isn't that what he says? If you seek, you will find. So they're literally seeking and they find. If you ask, it will be what? Given to you. If you knock, it will be opened. So the Bible says if you are proactive, God will meet you there. God desires to be found by you. Think about this for a second. In the book of Esther, you are, he, the, the book of Esther is highlighting the fact that God is what? Hiding himself. And he's been hiding himself. But here God is about to tell the world, if you look for me, I want to be found by you. I want to be found by you. And so here, more than likely, the wise men are the only ones that are noticing this. You say, but where are they from? Well, we've said they're from Persia. That's modern day Iran. To give you a context, modern day Iran, which is east of Israel, of Israel. Now, there is no biblical record of anyone else observing the star of Bethlehem. No biblical record. But we know this was specific for them. And so God was sending them a sign. The Magi in the east saw something in the heavens. We call it the star of Bethlehem. The Bible says it's his star. His star. And this this signal to them that something grand and great was happening. Now the reason I brought up the whole Daniel story is because Daniel is someone they would have known in their history, right? He was head of the Magi. That's like knowing one of our former presidents. 
And so they go to the scriptures and they start to search. And there in the book of Daniel, they find Daniel chapter 9, a precise date in which Messiah will be revealed. And they know this is a sign that the king of the Jews has come to earth. This is a sign in the heavens. And so the star helped them travel to the capital, which is Jerusalem. Now, why would they go to the capital? So if you're looking for a king, where are you going to start? You're going to start in the capital. And they run into an interesting character. His name is King Herod. King Herod. So read with me verse 3. When King Herod heard, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And all Jerusalem with him. Now, why was Jerusalem disturbed with him? Because King Herod was a madman. King Herod was an egotistical madman. How do we know this? Well, let me give you one story. History tells us that when King Herod was on his deathbed, he knew he was going to die soon. He wanted to make sure that the country didn't celebrate. Because it's said that when an evil tyrant dies, people what? Celebrate. They party. Like it's 1999. And so he wants to make sure they're not going to celebrate. So what he does is he orders the capture, the, uh, uh, the, the death, the capture and death of prominent individuals that are loved throughout the community in order to ensure that people would mourn. That's sick. Think about this. They're not going to cry for me, but they'll cry for others. So let me put others to death so that they'll cry and make sure that my death has the right amount of sorrow associated. This is an evil man. And so they go to King Herod. He was disturbed. And because they know what he's like, all of Jerusalem is disturbed with him because they don't know what he might do. When he had called together the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, when he had called together his wise men. Now he didn't have wise men. This is a Jew. This, this, is, uh, this is Israel. So he calls together the chief priests. He has them look in the prophets. That's the Old Testament. And as they looked in the Old Testament, they came across a very particular prophecy in the book of Micah. By the prophet Micah. And, he, and, and the prophet says, in Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied... This is what the prophet has written. And he begin, they begin to, to read what he wrote in verse 6. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, why would he come from Bethlehem? We know that the Bible also tells us he would come from the line of who? David. Now what are Mary and Joseph doing in Bethlehem? They are both from the line of David. And listen to me. Caesar Augusta called for a census, which he implemented every 14 years in order to tax Rome properly. And not only that, Jesus was born... During the time of this census, so his parents had to go back to their home town, their home area to be counted. Mary happens to be pregnant. Can I tell you? That's God's providence. This didn't surprise the Lord. He knew exactly that a census would be called for. He knew exactly that they would have to travel back and he knew exactly that the king of all glory would be born in Bethlehem to fulfill his promise to the world that he would come from the town of David. And you know, it's interesting because Bethlehem is just there about five miles outside of Jerusalem. And when I traveled there some years ago, they took us to Bethlehem. And in Bethlehem, there's a well. And I took a picture by this well that's very, very... Uh, Important in the sense because it's the well of David. And we know that David mentions this well when he's talking to his mighty men in the middle of battle and they're behind enemy lines and he says, man, how I long to wet my lips with the water from my well in Bethlehem. And his special forces unit risk life and limb, break through enemy lines, retrieve him some water, bring it all the way back. He's, he's, he's overtaken 
by the loyalty and the love that he feels that they offered him, that he won't drink it. He ends up pouring it out to the Lord as an offering. And God has, was always with David because of that, that, that heart he had for not only his people, but for the things of God. And so this town is highlighted by the prophet Micah. Now listen to verse 7. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out when they had exactly seen the star appear. Now how do we, we, we get another clue of what we know. We know that in verse 16, I believe, further down in the chapter, King Herod orders that all male children in this area be put to death that are two years and under. So the Magi must have told them some kind of time frame because the only way he can get a time frame was from the Magi. So they're talking and they're thinking, they're, they're talking in, in, in earnest, but, but they're talking to a madman. Later, just in a minute, you'll see that the, that, that, that the Lord himself tells them, don't go back, tell Herod, I need you to go back home by another way, and they do. And they do. But here, Herod finds out some kind of a time frame. Now you say, well, pastor, when did the star appear? Now that we do not know. And the reason I'm going through and taking so much time to be precise about this story is because there's so many misconceptions about the story. Come on, how many of you grew up watching or even participating in Christmas pageants as a child? Anyone ever get to be one of the three kings? Come on, I loved being the three kings. I loved carrying the gold. I loved carrying the frankincense, something cool. You know, you get to dress up in all that garb. Do you remember that as a kid? How many of you got to be the angel of the Lord and some got to be shepherds? And so there was three of us. There was myself, Aaron, and Isaac. And we were part of our children's ministry and we would do these, these Christmas pageants, these Christmas plays. And on one occasion I was playing, I was playing Joseph and, one, and my other brother Aaron was playing the angel that shows up to the shepherds. Remember that? And in Aaron and the angel choir sang, Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king and it was a beautiful thing and so my little brother Isaac who was about this big I don't remember how old he was but he was little and uh he just had this funny look and he and I'm gonna just kind of describe his look he used to walk a little pigeon toe and he had this big head <laughs> and so you can imagine how he just and he's a grouchy little sucker he grouchy little sucker and he had these little pouty lips and chubby cheeks and he just I want to be part of the play. I want to be part of the play. And he's rabble-rousing. Why don't I get to be part of the play? So they threw him in the play, and they gave him a role as a shepherd. And he wasn't supposed to get a staff, but the day of the, of the play, he ends up with a staff that's like three times his size. The staff is huge. It's got a shepherd hook on it and everything, and he's barely walking up there. And then at the end of the play, we're all up there, right, around the manger, worshiping baby Jesus, and he's like... That's not a real baby. <laughs> he said, that's not a real baby. Chris, Aaron, that's not a real baby. Now people are starting to chuckle and laugh, and he takes his staff, and he starts. Because <laughs> the baby's far. He's back here, but he's, he's convinced that's not a real baby. We're like, stop it. He said, that's not a real baby. That's not a real. <laughs> Look, it's not real. It turns into a comedy. <laughs> but can I tell you? The kids learn a lot. But they learn sometimes that the wise men came at that point when the baby was still in the manger. Can I tell you, we know from Scripture some things that, 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 that history and tradition tells us about the wise men because uh, that aren't actually that accurate. What do I mean by that? We don't know for certain that there were only three. There could have been more. We know there were three gifts given, but we don't know for certain that there was just one gift of gold. There could have been many gifts of gold, and the author says gold was given as a gift. Amen? We don't know how much frankincense. We don't know how much myrrh. We just know that gold, frankincense, myrrh were given, and we know these are, they have, they, they have a very special significance that we'll talk about later. We also do not know their names, even though tradition has given them names. We also know that they did not come at the time to worship Jesus 
while he was still in the stable of the manger. We know this came sometime later, and we know this because it's found right there in, uh, in, in verse 9. Read with me. Verse 9 says, after they had heard the king, that means after they had spoken to King Herod, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Now the word child literally can mean in this context, the Greek word that's used can mean an infant from zero to, to about a toddler's age. We know that they were in a home, so they were no longer in the stable. Joseph, being a good father, probably did whatever he had to to get his family into a house. So they're in a house by now. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Verse 10. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. And they bowed down and they worshipped him. And they opened their treasures. So we know there were multiple gifts, but we don't know how many of those gifts. We do know that there was gold, there was frankincense, and there was myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country through another route. And so this is the story of the wise men. Now we know that in verse 9, that child could mean what? Anything up to toddler's age. We know that Herod, by verse 16 or so, orders every child from two years old and down. So this star had been visible for quite some time, and here they are worshiping the king of glory. We know that they are kingmakers. We know that they've come from Persia all the way to honor a king. We know that they have really gotten under King Herod's skin. Why? Because this is big. This is a fulfillment of scripture, and King Herod's own priests are showing him, look, Prophet Micah, Prophet Daniel, Prophet Isaiah. Should I go on? Jeremiah. It goes on and on and on. Jesus was no ordinary baby. He was the king of glory. But I want you to understand one more thing. That Rome was in a very interesting place. There was a lot of upheaval, upheaval and there was a very politically tense and tumultuous time in Rome's history. This time that Jesus is born into. As a matter of fact, there's a moral decay in Rome. And you can read history and they tried different philosophies and different emperors would bring different philosophies trying desperately to save Rome, the Republic. It was sinking fast. There was a lot of talk of something big happening. So much so that Caesar Augusta even tried to claim to be a type of Messiah himself. And God invades this tumultuous, dark time, this time in history. He invades it himself. That's why the Bible calls Jesus Emmanuel, God with us. God comes to earth, but I want you to consider how he came. When he created Adam, he created him as a full-grown man. Now, he could have beamed Jesus down as a full-grown man. He could have beamed him down, teleported him. He could have been like Mork from Mork and Mindy, even an egg. I mean, it could have been, you know, who knows? And now I'm showing my age. Some of you are going, Mork, Mork and Mindy? You know, that's the guy who played Aladdin's genie, Robin Williams. You got to go, never mind. It's not worth it. It, it. But but this is my point. My point is he could have done something like that. How would you have introduced the king of glory? Would you have brought him down and had him be bigger than than than? Caesar but instead he chooses to let him be born as a child is there anything more vulnerable than a human child in this harsh harsh time in history God chooses to reveal himself in such a vulnerable way. To me, it's romantic. Jesus Christ comes as a soft little baby through the birth canal, not taking 
any, any advantages for himself. He comes just like you and I. He nurses at his mother's womb. I mean, at his mother's breast. He comes in this state to teenage parents that aren't even formally married. The scandal of it all. I love it. Jesus, he chooses to come in this way. Think about it for with me for a second. This is the light of heaven here. Here, you would think, so delicate and so fragile, and at any moment could be snuffed out. And in fact, Satan tries with all his might. But greater is he who is within you than he who is in the world. Greater is he who is within you than he who is in the world. And so when the world gets dark and it gets tough and it gets rough and it gets to be its darkest, deepest moment, you should know beyond all that you know that God specializes in those moments and he sends Jesus into that, that darkness and he creates a way. And that's what the story of Jesus is all about. So I want to ask you something as we get into this, this, this last point. The star of Bethlehem. What exactly was the star of Bethlehem? What exactly was the star of Bethlehem? Did you read the story with me? Did you pay close attention to those little nuances? Maybe I can highlight a couple. But first, I want to I tell you that the Greek word that's used here in this passage for star is aster. We get the word asteroid from there, from the root. It's A-S-T-E-R, aster. It's the Greek word, and it's used to denote a star or a celestial body. A celestial body. It's used 24 times in the, in the New Testament. 24 times in the New Testament. And can I tell you something else? This is the similar word for the name Esther. Now what did Esther represent? God hiding himself and saying, You have ignored me. I used to shine in my glory in your presence there in the tabernacle and everywhere you went, you would put me in the midst of your camp and I was always in the middle. But since you took me for granted, I'm going to step back. You're no longer going to see me in the same way and feel me in the same way and experience me in the same way. Instead, you will have to look for my providential hand of involvement through the ages. But now it's time for me to what? Show up in all of my glory Esther, the star, is going to, oh, come on now, is going to show up in the life of Christ as the star of heaven is brought down from heaven to dwell on earth. And now it's no longer just in heaven, but it's on earth, in the earth, and inside of you. Because like I used to dwell among my people in the midst of their camp, now I'm going to dwell among my people in the midst of their soul, their heart inside of them. Through the spirit of Jesus Christ himself. And this is the mystery that God is unveiling here. So this celestial body used 24 times, this, this word, aster, 24 times. And so there's basic rules of biblical interpretation. That state we should take the normal sense of the word unless, unless what? There is compelling evidence to suggest otherwise. So most people have always said, well, there's not enough compelling evidence to suggest otherwise. So star means star. It means a real literal star. And so some have said the North Star. But let me ask you this. Did the North Star just suddenly appear? No. How about... How about a comet, Pastor? They've said that a comet, because the star seems to be moving. It was moving. When was the last time you saw the, the North Star position itself in such precision that you know exactly what it's highlighting down below, like a particular house? Let me put it to you this way. How many of you have ever tried to chase a star or follow a star? 
Is that hard? That's hard. Now, you might pick a general direction, but you're never going to get there necessarily. It's like trying to find the end of the rainbow. I don't care what Lucky Charms tells you. You're not going to get there. It's a hard thing to do. So some have said, well, it's a supernova. It's a comet. It's some kind of asteroid. It was something. But what does the evidence tell us? Well, we know that there's some things that the passage highlights. I'm going to name three things for you. The stars seem to appear, to appear only to the Magi at a particular time in history. Stars don't just do that. At a particular time in history. Also, the celestial bodies normally move from east to west due to the Earth's rotation. Yet this star, at one point, appears to them when they leave Herod and it moves from the north to the south. To Bethlehem and it leads them directly to a place so much so that they know that the star is basically like a huge billboard saying right there go in that house the Bible says they didn't have to go from house to house say is, are, is he in this neighborhood no he's in this house and they found the baby with Mary come on somebody needs to be impressed by this Esther, God was hiding himself. In Jesus, God is showing himself. Showing himself for all the world to see. And here he's introducing himself. We can talk about the different folks he introduces himself to first, but the whole world is going to see him. Amen. And so you might ask yourself, okay, if it's not just some star, then what are the possible explanations. Well, in the book of Revelations, the Bible in chapter 12 talks about a celestial fight between Satan, his fallen angels, or the angels that would soon be fallen, and the angels of God. The Bible depicts Satan as the great dragon who takes out what? A third of the asters of heaven. Oh, so you're telling me the Bible has used that name to depict an angel. That's exactly what I'm telling you. So you're saying, Pastor, this star may not be any star. It might be the, an angel of the Lord saying, hey, right here, this is where God wants you to be. Absolutely, that's what I'm saying. But I'm saying something even deeper than that. There's a third possibility. Not that it was just a star. Not that it was an angel, all it be the most important angel that you can think of, I think it might have been God himself. Because the Bible talks about in the Old Testament the Shekinah glory of the Lord that showed up in all its brilliance and told Israel, I love you and I will always be with you. And isn't that what Jesus says to us? I love you and I will always be with you. I will never forsake you, church. I will never leave you as orphans is what he told his disciples. I will be with you. And while Jesus, while God may have been hiding himself, now he is revealing himself and in his glory he is shining bright saying, I'm coming down. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. I want you to know him. I want you to know him. That's the Christmas message that Jesus Christ comes as the star or the light of all heaven. And he comes to earth so that you might have light. You might have light. Now the very first promise God ever made, did you know the very first promise God ever made was a Christmas promise? It's, it's found there after death is snuck in. And this is what God comes to show us at Christmas, that he conquers death, that he is greater than any disappointment. He is greater than any struggle. I don't care what America's going through. Jesus is the answer. I don't care what your, what your town is going through. Jesus is the answer. I don't care what your family's going through. Jesus is the answer. I don't care what you're going through. Jesus is the answer. 
Listen to the promise and a valuable principle. If you're here today, I want you to know the valuable principle that needs to be preached from every single platform across America. And that is that life conquers death, but you have to have death before you can rise to life. You've got to go through the valley of the shadow of death so that you can stand with him on the mountaintop. There's a centrality in, and that's why some preachers today are trying to skip over that and just talk about the life. But here it is. Everywhere you look, Jesus says, you cannot be first until you're last. You cannot live until you die. Over and over and over, this is what's found. In your deepest, darkest moment, that's when Jesus shines the brightest. That's when you come to know him. That's when you get to really understand who he is and how much he loves you. So if you're here today and you've been discouraged, you need to be encouraged and say, Lord, you're about to reveal yourself in an awesome way to me. I'm about to see your glory shine in my life. And I cannot wait to meet you, Lord, in that deeper most blessed moment. You say, okay, pastor, show me again from scripture. I got a quick little uh, uh, reminder. How many of you know the story of Lazarus? How many of you know the story of Lazarus? It's a popular story. Jesus was friends with the family. He had two sisters, Mary and Martha. Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus. Our brother is dying, not dead, dying. You need to come quickly. Jesus gets distracted by human understanding. If we were watching it, we'd say he, he, he lollygagged, he, he got distracted, too many pressures on him, too many demands of his ministry. He didn't get there on time because of the things that transpired, people needing healing, people needing him. He gets there, Lazarus has now been dead, how long? Four days. He's what you would call dead dead. By this time, he's already in paradise with the rest of the guys. I like the way the old artist Carmen used to put it. Lazarus is there on testimony night and people are standing up and saying, you know, who Jesus was to them. And Samson talks about Jesus was the strength that gave him the, the, the ability to knock a few heads together. And, and Daniel's saying, well, Jesus was the, the one who shut the mouths of the lions. And the three who were in the, for, for, in the fiery furnace said, Jesus was the one who was in the fiery furnace with us. And they're all telling about who Jesus was in these different types and shadows. But Lazarus stands up and says, hey, guys, I got something to say. Jesus was my friend. See, he used to come over to my house and eat with my sisters and I. And like I'm talking to you, he used to talk to me. And I remember his sweet, calm, kind, patient demeanor. And how he made me feel larger than life. See, to you, he was this and that, but to me, he was my friend. In fact, I can still remember the way he used to say my name. And just then, Jesus says, Lazarus. It's like I can hear it now. <laughs> Lazarus. Jesus? Wait a minute, fellas. I think I hear him calling me now. Lazarus, come forth. Guys, I got to go. <laughs> and he comes walking out of that grave. You say, why are you telling me this story? Because this is the story of the first Christmas promise when God said, listen to it, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. You are going to kill. You're going to try to kill him. And you're going to put him in the grave. But he's going to conquer death. And from that moment, he's going to tell everyone, you can too. Because the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in you through the power of the Holy Spirit that is the Spirit of the living Christ. The Spirit of the living God. Listen to me good. Listen to what Jesus said in John 12, 24. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel or a seed of anything 
falls to the ground and dies. He's foretelling what God promised in Genesis that this seed, this baby would be born of a woman. He wouldn't take any shortcuts. He would grow up vulnerable and yet change the course of human history as he hung on the cross as one man, as one seed, and he died in the ground, but he would be reborn. How many of you have ever seen a seed sprout and push the grave? Oh, come on now. Push the grave aside and take life. And from that one seed, Jesus says, many will come to be. And this is the story of Christmas that God sent Jesus into a dark, dark world. A dark, dark world. In the fullness of time when the world was at its darkest point, he sent that seed of light. That baby born in a manger. And that light began to shine. And it was reborn out of the grave. And it began to spread to others. And one by one, the message of Christmas and Easter began to spread. And then another And then another, and then another. And by the time the book of Acts comes around, thousands are being saved, lives are being changed. And today it's reached the whole world. And it kept spreading and it keeps spreading today. And some take a little longer to get it, some are trying to find their cell phone. Some are saying, I brought the Bible, not my cell phone, Pastor. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that. This is Christmas. That Jesus, being the light of the world, came down from heaven. And he began to change people's lives one by one. Has he changed your life? You might say, Pastor, I'm saved. But are you living saved? Living with that light of hope, of peace, of joy, of love. See, but those things are so soft. You don't know God's way. So before we go any further, I'm going to ask you, if there's anyone here that needs prayer, say, Pastor, I've been walking in darkness. I feel like there's been a cloud over me. I've made some mistakes or I've done this and life has take me, taken me through my ups and downs and twists and turns and I've lost that light. I don't feel that peace. I don't feel, I feel like I'm overwhelmed with just nothingness. I need I need what you were talking about. I need you, Jesus. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand vulnerably. Say, Lord, I need you. And I want to pray for you. I want to pray believing that God is all you need. Is there anyone here? I see hands. I see your hand in the back. I see your hand right here. I see another hand in the back. I see another hand right here. Anyone else? Back here, there's nothing special about me, but there's something super powerful about the prayer of those that are seeking with all their heart. Let's just pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for this day, and I thank you, Lord, for everyone that's here today, especially those that are lifting their hands, saying they need you. Lord, I pray that you would be sufficient 
that you would break through the darkness, that your light would pierce it, Lord, that you would begin to explode life and light, and Lord, that you would give them hope and peace and joy and those qualities that can only come from you, O Holy Spirit. I pray, God, that right now you would be all that is needed. God, I pray that they would feel beyond a shadow of a doubt that they are in this moment to know you better. Lazarus knew you as a friend, and Lazarus knew you as the one who could heal the lame, make the blind see. But that day you introduced him to the one who could raise the dead. Lord, I pray that you would introduce your family to your supernatural miracle-working power. Whatever's needed. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, the Bible says that Jesus came to this earth to die on a cross. That's that seed that had to die. He was put in the earth. He was put in a tomb. He conquered that, that tomb. He conquered death. And now we live because he lived. That one seed is turned into many seeds. So we partake of communion saying, thank you, Lord, for giving your body to be broken that I might have healing. Thank you, Lord, for giving your blood to be shed that I might have forgiveness. If you're here today and you want to receive this as salvation, you simply state with your heart and with your mouth, Lord Jesus, I receive you as the Son of God and the ultimate sacrifice for my salvation. I put my faith in you and not in me. From this moment, Holy Spirit, lead me. I am yours. In Jesus' name, I'll never be the same. Amen. Church, I love you. Have a great, great week. And let Jesus Christ be the light of your life.